From Airbill, this is Inside Kurdistan. Welcome to Inside Kurdistan. I'm your host, Aaron Weintraub. I'm an American journalist and translator for the Kurdistan Information Network. And my job on this podcast is to break down topics in Kurdistan for you, whether they're cultural, political, economic, uh, none or all of the above, so that hopefully, if you don't know anything about what's going on here, by the end of the episode, you can walk away feeling like you do. Sometimes we'll focus on Erbil, uh, which is the city that we're based out of, and we may focus on other cities in Kurdistan as well. Uh, We might zoom out and focus on Iraq, and we'll explore the differences between the two. Sometimes we'll focus on the whole of the Middle East region, uh, or maybe we'll focus on somewhere completely different. Uh, But don't worry, we'll always bring it back to inside Kurdistan. Joining me today is Dr. Mariana Harundaki. Dr. Harundaki is an author and researcher uh, and a senior lecturer at the University of Lincoln, and that's the Lincoln in the United Kingdom, not the Lincoln in the United States. Her scope of research primarily focuses on Kurdistan's role as a non-state actor. Uh, Now, what is a non-state actor? Google will tell you that a non-state actor is essentially any organization or group that isn't considered a formal governing body. Uh, And what does that mean? (laughs) The Kurdistan regional government, uh, which in our interview is called the KRG, is considered a non-state actor. But non-state actor is a very vague term, and it can be misused. Uh, If you want to be careless with that definition, uh, the Girl Scouts uh, could be a non-state actor, Real Madrid, uh, the Wu-Tang Clan, if you wanted to use it incorrectly. Uh, So it's a very easy term to misinterpret. Uh, But Dr. Harundaki has dedicated her research towards defining it in more graspable ways uh, for people who may not have a lot of specific knowledge about how this region works. And specifically, she focused on Kurdistan as the perfect example of what a non-state actor is in the Middle East. So we're going to talk about Kurdistan's political relations with its neighbors. And it's a conversation that's largely based off of a book that she published in 2018 called Iran and Turkey, where she spends the core of that book bridging the historical relations between these two countries with the more modern relationship that we see today. And of course, if you look at a map, uh, it's impossible to talk about Iran and Turkey without bringing up Iraq and Kurdistan. So don't worry, uh, she didn't forget She spends uh, a lot of the second half of the book talking about Kurdistan's political role and how it's changed due to recent developments in the region. Uh, And by recent developments in the region, I mean the U.S. invasion of Iraq, because within that time, a lot has happened with Kurdistan's position uh, politically in this region. And so that's what we're going to be getting into today. One more quick note, uh, you'll hear the letters IR used a bit in this interview. Uh, IR just means international relations, which is a field of study that Dr. Harundaki specializes in. So you'll hear that sprinkled in. Um, but that's enough for me. Uh, without further ado, here's Dr. Mariana Harundaki. Dr. Harundaki, thanks so much for joining me today. I think maybe the best thing to do, since this book covers so many topics, is why don't we start with a general overview of what it covers? Because it's a historical book that helps explain what's going on now, and those are always fun. But in some respects, because of that, Kurdistan doesn't necessarily enter into the picture immediately. And so how does the history of Iran and Turkey's relationship help provide context to what a non-state actor is? Um, First of all, I would like to thank you for the invitation and to um, wish you good luck in this new project, Kurdistan In. Um, I would like to um, thank our audience uh, today and uh, wish happy Ramadan to all. Um, Going back to um, the book, I would say that um, 
It's interesting that, yes, the book isn't entitled Iran and Turkey, International and Regional Engagement in the Middle East, but in reality, what I'm trying to do uh, in this book is not necessarily to look at the interrelationship between these two states, but to look at those uh, prime common factors that they influence their foreign policy throughout. Um, so... Um, talking about like those factors, I could say that um, this sort of this this sort of sort of trajectory that we are looking at here um, is about like a specific sort of factors. So I'm looking how uh, one uh, non-state entities, as it is the case um, uh, with the Kurds, are able to play a critical role in the formulation of those two um, states' foreign policies. So obviously there is an impact on the societal level, but what we are looking at is obviously at this sort of upper level where we have all those entities interplay. Actually, something I liked about the book's approach was how you dealt with reframing Kurdish politics. I think a lot of the time, whenever I heard about Kurdistan or Kurdish issues in the news or in history, it's always framed as a population of people who have outside forces affect them, rather than a community in the world that moves and thinks for itself and can be appreciated as its own culture and society that affects other cultures and societies, which I think is an important perspective shift that I saw in your writing. I really thank you for this uh, notice because uh, I think this is where um, the, if you like the uh, the point is when even we are talking about the broader discipline of international relations because you know like traditionally it's state-centric and traditionally the IR discipline is talking about interstate relations um, only sort of recently you know, scholars they're trying how, somehow to open up the, the scope and understand that the ontology of IR what is out there and what we are trying to study is not just states. Now when we are going to the non-state actors again this is a misunderstood uh, term and uh, I'm really happy that um, now we're trying to produce a new sort of book and I'm trying to insert a typology when it comes to non-state actors. Uh, first of all, um, when we are talking about the non-state entities, it's not just everything you know out there that you know they exist. Um, uh, and as you mentioned, uh, very sort of like strategically, uh, they have been consumed only within a terminological sort of like approach of the pawns, yeah. which is, I think, um, not exactly what, what, what it is. Mm. Nowadays, first of all, we have understood, I think, clearly through all these different examples that the Middle East is rich in, is that um, we are talking about entities that they are that they they exist on their own right, which means we need to study them separately, but also in relation to whatever you know else uh, uh, it exists. Secondly, uh, when we are talking about the non-state entities, we're not just talking about a thing. We are talking about a typology. You cannot categorize ISIS in the same way as you would perceive, for example, the KRG. To try and understand that we are talking about uh, the existence of a typology of non-state actors. So when we are um, when we are coming to uh, what uh, what you are saying to this sort of uh, specific type, which according to me, it's called state to be, uh, regardless of the end product of this sort of evolution. It's it's very clear that uh, we can talk about institutionalized relations between a state and a non-state entity like this specific type.
wipe the states to be like the Kurdistan region of Iraq. One and two, um, it has been also, uh, I think, proven uh, that uh, through obviously its interactions and its engagement, that they can also, these sort of specific states to be type types, uh, they can also act as agents of foreign policy. Okay, so um, what you are saying, the fact, you know, that it's not just only that they are affected, but they are able also to affect directly the foreign policy of the others is a reality. And neither the discipline nor, I think, broadly speaking, whatever is called international community cannot ignore any longer. And I think this sort of like... um, fact that, oh, yes, okay, the international relations system is state-centric is absolutely true and still there, but it does not exist abstractly and on its own. It has been informed um, through um, uh, also the non-state level, and this is something that we need to consider if we want to read the reality, um, you know, like in a balanced, neutral way. I think that can be something academic or research circles as well as journalists or political figures can be guilty of. It's this very old-fashioned approach towards dealing with who matters in this region. And I think partially that's because in the past, the global conversation about Kurdistan, about the Middle East, and other areas has been driven by Western powers, and particularly with a European, Western European, or American focus. And so sometimes groups that matter quite a bit get ignored and then the decision from the past to ignore certain actors rather than keep as many chairs at the table as possible affects the future of all of the groups. And then the world is shocked by the consequences when really we were only ever focusing on half the picture the whole time. Um, starting from the last bit before I go to, to the very beginning, yeah. the role of institutions as another type uh, mm-hmm. that I distinguish as well. You say now that what's happening really in Ukraine, as a, at least as a starting point, is all about NATO. It's all about an institution Entirely. and how an institution, despite the fact, I mean, I, we're not judging here whether this has been uh, instrumentalized or not, or uh, the point is that an institution can really have such a sort of effect, okay, in the formulation of a foreign policy that reaches the point of an invasion, as is in the case of Ukraine. So, um, yes, um, I agree with you. But um, apart from that, you know, I think we go back to my first point, how important really is the ability to see something not only as a passenger in the train, but also outside the train. Um, and so <laughs> the, the point is that you have to have to be able and interplay between the two. And that's why here, I think, breaking somehow like taboos, okay? Because, I mean, we have to be, I think, honest and sincere. When nowadays everybody's talking with everyone, I mean, on the international level, mm-hmm. uh, then it means that there is no such thing as a sensitivity of any issue. Everything is on the table and, you know, there are negotiations, there are discussions and so forth. So I think we have to move a little bit beyond that and look at what you are saying in more sort of like um, um, holistic scope. I would call it holistic scope because I'm in front of, in general, sort of holistic approaches mm-hmm. because we need to identify what it is out there in terms of elements, uh, what they're playing in and so forth. I will tell you an example uh, in order somehow to to demonstrate how sometimes the literature is ruminating itself as well. Uh, we are saying, okay, about the Iranian revolution, the Iranian revolution, how much the Iranian revolution was affecting foreign policy and so forth. <clears throat> and of course, the literature was supporting that to a great extent. So um, when I went, you know, back to the sources and to when I went basically to to my interviews and and try sort of to sketch out what's happening out there, I mean, the reality it was that far before the Iranian Revolution, nineteen seventy nine, um, 
breaks out in uh, in Iran. We have seen that already an Islamic government was in power in Turkey. So this means that the Iranian revolution did not really come in order to impose political Islam in Turkey. This is one. Two, um, uh, the um, Iranian, if you like, foreign policy itself, if we want again to be honest, is that it's primarily pragmatic, it's primarily realistic before being theocratic. And I think the biggest proof of that is the um, statements and the speeches of Khomeini himself, who would argue really that, look, when it comes to our uh, national interest, these uh, have a priority over any other Islamic sort of beliefs and so forth. So what I'm trying to say is that this sort of realistic sort of approach is there regardless of how really uh, we would like to use religion as a tool when it comes obviously to politics only and I'm talking within this frame strictly and to our point uh, to our point the scope of something is something which is very important I think we as academics we have or analysts however you want to call us we have I think this sort of obligation of trying and open up rather than um, seeing things strictly through pipeline yeah uh, I think it, it does not help and the society will not be able to do that. Uh, we are responsible, I think, and in charge of trying to really contribute to, I don't know, a, a more peaceful world, if you like, because I think if you don't have a clear understanding of what is happening out there, then this is, I mean, beyond any sort of obviously um, national interest directive, um, it's less possible that you know this understanding of what is going out there would be able to be if you like um, implemented as a practice as well and i think um, um this is what our our basically um field of studies our sort of job is really is really doing our work is is just this i think how we are able to sort of open up and clarify and contribute a better understanding mm-hmm. um in order then certain sort of decisions to be able and reach if we would be talking about an ideal world we we need to do that and we cannot really any longer um sort of like um uh, sort of uh, ruminate, you know, like old-fashioned studies, and it doesn't doesn't work like this. Always, I think we we need to to, to look like you know uh, forward. Let's get into how Kurdistan has affected the countries around it in the past twenty to thirty years. I think it's an important part of your book that you really emphasize the effect of the U.S. invasion of Iraq as a turning point for the Kurds. How do you feel the past few decades have allowed Kurdistan to assert itself as a non-state actor in the region? I think uh, if you take it from the very beginning and the establishment of uh, the carriage in itself 1992 as an outcome of a humanitarian crisis really not really related because of any Kurdish cause by itself, you see how really these material structures, these developments that they are taking place are really critical in the shaping uh, of, um, of, uh, of of regional politics. So, of course, like the, 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 the line has been blurred between the regional and the international because in any way we're a globalized village. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, when it comes to um, to to the uh, to the Kurdistan region um, of Iraq, I think it's you know like drastic the changes. This is related, obviously, uh, to how the actor in itself has been played, but more importantly, the fact that the conditions there were such that you know they just brought up all these new realities. Um, Two thousand three regime change. Later on, um, you have um, ISIS. Two thousand 
2017. So surprising, as I would call them, surprising events uh, that uh, not necessarily the regime change in Iraq. I think that it was in place since a long time ago. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, later on, um, surprising events that I think they have uh, really shaped. I think we have to really read the reality and move beyond stereotypes. And um, yeah, I think uh, this stereotypical sort of um, uh, approach is something that has been the main obstacle, I think, in the formulation of effective, let's call it, foreign policy decisions. Yeah, I'm talking about obviously the international versus versus the regional. Yeah, but it has been drastic, of course. Nowadays, you, I, mean, I think the fact that um, we refer to the KRG as an agent of foreign policy in, it, in itself, so this, I think by itself, places it in the international arena. And, um, you know, like these, I think this is very much related also to the evolution of certain terms, certain sort of structures. When we are talking about, for example, the state, obviously the state is not the European nation state system as we knew it before. We have moved on into different modes of governance, federations, confederations, so forth. So I think it's part of this development and evolution um, that uh, that we are talking about. Uh, but... Um, yeah, I mean, uh, when it comes to to Syria, it's a far more complicated sort of case. But I think it's been verified, whatever we have said, vis-a-vis the role of non-state entities, uh, vis-a-vis the role of all these factors that I'm trying to bring in my book. And uh, I think what I'm trying to argue in the end is that uh, any, maybe, you know, IR discipline is a need in the end of an, an IR grant theory in a sense of um, being able to identify certain elements and you know based on the case study we see how and what sort of like findings we come up with because I think uh, and this is one of the basically arguments in general of my search is that the current sort of middle range IR theories they are very good but maybe they are able only to answer specific questions and deal with specific terms but when it comes to regions they are so complicated I think the the room for maneuver has to be sort of um, wider. Um, that's why I think I'm arguing about maybe the need of for a grand sort of theory able to identify all these elements that we mentioned before, rather than have a priori assumptions sets that you know this leads to B, that one leads to A, and so forth. Before we wrap up, I think it would be good to ask you where you see the influence of non-state actors going. And generally speaking, with Kurdistan, how do we create a future in this region as academics and journalists and also just as everyday people where we can start factoring in as many groups and and start practicing more inclusivity when it comes to international relations? You know, like zooming uh, zooming out uh, from this, um, I would really say that uh, the Middle Eastern studies, more specifically Kurdish studies, either, you know, we are talking about Iraq or even more Syria because obviously there less uh, things uh, have been written, obviously because of the developments, they were not that um, uh, influential, if you if you like, drastic before. It was more sort of set stone and everything. Um, I think that uh, really there is... Um, loads of space and um, apart from that uh, I think uh, when we talk about the criticisms especially vis-a-vis the IR and so forth I think it needs really to be done loads of work more given the, the thing that you know um, we are talking about the elevation um, of um, the Kurdish factor as important in international politics um, to conclude this I think if you ask me for instance uh, what uh, 
has offered me this, because you mentioned about the society and all this, uh, on a personal level, I think, I mean, I mean, my work, my studies as a feedback, uh, and in this way, somehow I close it how maybe you uh, started it. It is exactly this, the fact that I think um, if I got something, is the appreciation of the Kurdish society. All right, well, Dr. Hanun thank, thank you, thank you, so you very much. much. Thank you. Thanks so much again to Dr. Mariana Haruntaki for taking the time to talk with me. And thanks to you, of course, for listening. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about this episode or any of our upcoming episodes, you can contact us at podcast at curtistanin.net. Thanks once again. I've been Aaron Weintraub with Inside Kurdistan. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.